You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hi there, this is Jackson McInerney reporting for Stick Together, the only national program dedicated to union news, workers' stories and social justice. Produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR Radical Radio and broadcast around so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and we pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today on Stick Together, we'll be having a good old chinwag with one of the more invisible members of our public education sector, the Education Support, or ES, worker. Unlike teachers, who are regularly recognised and at the very least offered the lip service of respect from the broader community, the work of education support staff is misunderstood and chronically undervalued. ES staff do all manner of work within a school, from administration to classroom support to communications. Today, we are lucky to be joined by the communications officer of a large state secondary school. But first, some union news. Continuing on from last week's discussion of the growing cataclysm of casualisation in this country, the federal court last week ruled in favour of the corporates leading this ossification of industrial rights and against the working people who stand to lose even more through the process. The Transport Workers' Union will appeal the federal court's decision on December 17th to not reinstate the 2,000 Qantas staff who were illegally sacked during 2020, only to be replaced by low-wage temporary labour hire. While the federal court ruled the sackings were illegal in an earlier finding in July this year, the court will instead pursue compensation rather than reinstatement for those workers. The federal government's mid-year economic and fiscal outlook, released on December 16th, confirms that after years of stagnant wages growth, real wages will go backwards this financial year, with wages outpaced by inflation. In the words of Acting Secretary of the ACTU, Liam O'Brien, the Prime Minister has once again failed to produce any credible plan to address the cancer of insecure work, which is hurting working people and their pay packets. Too many people are stuck in casual and part-time jobs, including over 1 million Australians who can't get enough hours. The Prime Minister has no plan to address the rampant casualisation of Australian jobs. His only response is to continue to peddle his con-job casual conversion laws, which have been exposed as a cruel hoax on working people. The Senate Select Committee on Job Security revealed the ineffectiveness of these casual conversion laws during evidentiary hearings in Newcastle in early December, finding that none of the 72% of TAFE New South Wales employees who are casual and insecure were offered a transition to permanent work under the scheme. Across the New South Wales university sector, only 2% of eligible academic workers were offered permanent positions through the scheme. Meanwhile, 71% of mining giant BHP's workforce is indirectly employed. 
And that's all for Union News. You are listening to Stick Together, produced at 3CR's Melbourne Studios for the Community Radio Network. I'm Jackson McInerney. The current and protracted negotiations between the Victorian branch of the AEU and the Victorian government on a new government schools agreement are yet to bear fruit, with the union forecasting stop work and strike action in term one 2022 if the government continues to ignore the bulk of the outstanding log of claims. Central union demands are workload relief and appropriate remuneration for members. Today, we're speaking with Zoe Alexiades, who is an AEU member and an education support worker at a 1500 student and 200 staff government school in inner Melbourne. Zoe, thanks so much for joining Stick Together. Thanks for having me. So Zoe, I think most listeners uh, will actually be unfamiliar with the work that education support or ES staff actually do, as opposed to teachers, because most people have had a few of those in their lifetime. Could you tell me a bit about your job? Like what does an average work week look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important to touch on what I do, but also mention that ES is a very diverse um, kind of workforce and what I do to what my person who sits next to me does is very different. Um, So for me, um, I'm a trained graphic designer. I work as a communications officer um, and I do a very kind of holistic school level approach to my work. So um, I'm really lucky in the sense that I don't have tunnel vision on one area in the school, but I actually get to see what happens across the board in the camps program, in the music program, in the sports department. Um, So I'm really lucky that I get to see a very like wide variety and range of the school's offerings. Um, An average work week, sort of changes it's quite different it sort of goes with the ebbs and flows of the normal school year so I'll often do um, five kind of smaller scale tasks during the day and when I say smaller scale I mean tasks that are doable in a day's work Um, then I'll do maybe three tasks during the week that are larger scale so they cover more of a school strategy based approach so something like um a social media strategy for the school, um, which develops community engagement, works out how we're going to have that marketing approach, um, who we're going to target in paid advertisements, um, all that kind of stuff, which is quite holistic. And I don't don't necessarily think people would realise that someone at a school does that. Um, You kind of see ads every day on TV and go, oh, yeah, someone has to make those. But it's not something you necessarily think about when it comes to a school because obviously everyone thinks of teachers. Um, And when you think of ES, a lot of people think of integration staff. Um, But there are a really wide range um, of ES staff, especially at such a large school that I work at. Um, Yeah. Mm. Just before we dig in a little deeper into your work, I did imagine that in your role, you would have a lot of oversight of all the various types of education support workers there are. Could you talk a little bit about some of the ES colleagues or roles that stand out to you as being maybe undervalued or underappreciated? Like a lot of the union's demands are around pay increases and workload decreases. Who, you know, within your school deserves a pay rise and why? 
Yeah, it's it's such a hard question to answer. I think honestly, every single AS staff member um, is undervalued, not, not just at my school, but across the board. I think integration staff work so hard and they're some of the lowest paid people, not just in the school, in our society, their pay grade, their minimum pay grade is $15,000 above the poverty line. That is not acceptable and not fair and not equitable. Just like let that sink in for a moment. That's not okay. And the work that they're doing is quite like specialised. Like often these integration aides are working with some of the highest needs kids in in the school community. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. They... um, they do a lot of work with kids who have funding from the government um, for learning differences. Um, so their work is very tough. I, I'm not sure I'd be able to hack it, to be honest. Um, it's incredibly tough work. It's, it's emotionally draining. It's mentally draining. I can't imagine many of them go home and don't think about those students later and go, oh, did I do enough? Like, did I help them enough? Um, it is very taxing work. Um, I would say, just to give you an idea of other ES staff in the school, um, there are, you know, IT support, um, library staff, people who do the enrolments, admin, reception. There is a very wide range of facilities, maintenance, um, you know, of people who do a great range of work across our school. Um, especially at such a large school, we do have quite a large ES base. Um but to be honest, I don't think any of them are paid fairly. And with your work, how often, you know, we saw the union release some statistics that the average teacher works 15 hours of unpaid overtime each week. Mm-hmm. How often are you called on to work outside or beyond? You know, I think a lot of people imagine that school workers work kind of nine to three. How often are you expected to work overtime? And the other thing that I'm interested in is how many different people are you kind of reporting to? at any given time yeah that's such a good question so um i'll start with the end piece there i report to six people so technically i report to one person but realistically i have six bosses when you're looking at the hierarchy of things when you're looking at um who can drop information on my desk and you know in the drop of a hat i must do it there's six people who can do that to me um, and who do do that to me. And, and fair enough, because they're busy people and they have lots to do and they need to get it done. And I just pick it up and do it straight away. But what that means in the grand scheme of things is that I do that work and then other work gets left till later, which then has to be done in overtime hours. So the way I operate is I really struggle to... Um, work late into the evening so I will get to work about half an hour early every morning and that half an hour when no one's coming into my office no one's interrupting me because there's no one at school um, that allows me to respond to all my emails so that means that during the day I can get my work done without responding to emails you know every two seconds like trying to interrupt me Um, And I find that a really productive and efficient way to work. Um, I also never really take a lunch break. So I will like make time to eat at my desk um, and physically like get that food and sustenance into my body, but I won't actually take a break um, because I can't afford to, because otherwise I'll be there till six o'clock at night. 
Um, I often in my role, I look after events. So I will often be at the school for a presentation evening or a leadership event after working hours. Um, I mean, in theory, you take time in lieu and it, you know, it all sorts itself out, but it's really hard because I think sometimes, and I, I think this is sort of where the underlying issue in schools is with ES. Um, I, I sometimes don't feel like I can get my work done if I take time in lieu because then it'll just pile up for tomorrow and then it causes a flow on effect for the rest of the week. And what I was getting at before, the, the real issue here is that I really care about my job. I genuinely really care about the outcomes for the school. I care about the outcomes for the students. I care about my colleagues and I know that they all care about me too. I don't think I'm alone in saying that I work in a school because I genuinely care about people. And I think that school staff have been consistently undervalued because people prey on their empathy. And I'm talking directly to the government here. I think you have preyed on our empathy for far too long. And I don't think it's good enough to expect school staff to stay in schools when we have a very diverse range of skills and we could take them to the corporate world, we could take them to private schools, we could take them elsewhere. I don't think it's fair to expect us to stay in schools just because we care. It's such a good point. And I feel like work that has, you know, intrinsic, intrinsic human value, like education, like healthcare, you know, so often right for exploitation because the people are there for those reasons that you've just described, you know, but it, yeah. but you know, like loyalty and empathy and care, don't keep the lights on, you know, don't pay your Absolutely. rent. This is, this is, this is the reality. So there's an economic reality there as well. Yeah. It was really interesting what you said there about a lunch break. Cause I know that was one of the union's more recent, um, protected actions was to tell yeah. particularly ES staff to take their paid or I'm sorry, their unpaid yeah. <laughs> half an hour of lunch break that they're yeah. supposedly entitled to. Um, yeah. How easy has that been for you to do as a, oh, as a passionate union member? It's been so hard. I actually had to tell an assistant principal a couple days before the end of term, so a hectic time in itself, that I was on a lunch break and I would do it in half an hour's time. And it was such an awkward conversation but my inner unionist was like do it you have to do it mm. but I I felt really uncomfortable and I felt awkward saying like oh no I have to and of course the assistant principal was absolutely on board and was like oh go take your lunch break what, what are you doing talking to me during your lunch break and like that's the thing is like everyone where I work is really supportive but it doesn't take away from the fact that the government is um, yeah, underpaying us and not agreeing to a new agreement and not negotiating properly with the union. I think a lot of the industrial actions so far haven't necessarily been applicable to ES. And I do feel like sometimes ES do get left behind in the negotiations, um, which is really hard and does feel a little unfair. And um, we do sort of get forgotten about, but I did feel that that lunch break was the most effective thing that we've done so far because it really applied to me and I know it applied to colleagues of mine and I felt like, oh, wow, this is what it's like to actually take 30 minutes and not do anything. 
And it is so interesting, like even when you're in a supportive workplace and not every worker is, you know, every workplace is different. It's still hard to kind of talk back to who is, yeah, as you say, one of your many bosses and say, no, I'm going to put myself first like that. I mean, that's what's so nice to have other people doing it with you and you don't have to do it alone but it's it's you know it's a it's a thing worth highlighting that it's not always easy to to set those boundaries uh you know in various workplaces so we've spoken you know we've touched on already that like workload and wages are two of the major concerns what would reducing workload to your mind like how could that be done practically in your role um how could those um boundaries be be set at an industrial level to to your mind yeah it's it's a really hard one I think to be honest the only way that I can reduce my workload and all the work that's really important still gets done is um I think I would need to have someone else be hired I just I don't I don't think one person can physically do all the work that needs to be done in the school by myself. Mm. Um, I don't know how that looks at like an industrial level, um, but maybe if pay is addressed, then like working overtime won't be such a big deal. I know that sounds really bad to say, but I don't, I like, I don't have the answer. Like that's the reality. I, I don't, I don't have the answer, but yeah, maybe if I'm if I'm paid more fairly, like I, I look at um, in in preparation for this, I, I looked at a very similar job to mine, like a communications manager um, the, in the government and, and what they would get paid. And consistently in each department, in the Department of Education, in the Department um, of Treasury, in the Department of Jobs, like so many different departments the pay is $30,000 more than what I get paid. And I don't want to put a dollar figure on it because I don't think it's necessarily applicable to everyone. And I know people will listen to this and go, but $30,000 times every ES staff member in the whole state, that's a lot of money. But the reality is $30,000 means for me, it means that I don't have to work full time and then also go to another school after hours and work part time. It means that I don't have to babysit on a Friday and Saturday and Sunday night. It means that I don't have to work an eight till five on Saturday to make ends meet. Like that's what $30,000 extra in my pay looks like for me. It means that I can enjoy my, you know, mid twenties and not work 60 hour weeks. Yeah. And you know what? I feel like there's a lot of pressure to like never talk about what is fair pay or like, you know, and it's funny that you said that like if I was paid equitably or just, you know, uh, justly, then overtime wouldn't feel like such a drag. And you look at industries where overtime is paid at double or time and a half and people want to do it, you know, but when you're in an industry where it is unpaid, of course it wears you down. Like, I don't think these things are like unspeakable. I think we need to be saying them more mm. often and it's it's great to hear you say that i was going to ask what a pay rise would mean to you and, and you've already told me and that and that's awesome because yeah no i don't think anyone wants to be working 60 hours a week if they can avoid it you know like these, yeah. these are um this is about work-life balance as well so yeah. i know that um your parents 
are teachers in, in yeah. previous conversations we've had and and you've worked you know you mentioned there that you work at another school you've worked in both the private and public sectors and you also you yourself went to Caulfield Grammar um, your parents yeah. were teaching there I think yeah um, so 70 percent of government school principals when they were surveyed by the union said their schools were chronically underfunded mm. with your you've got a pretty good view on this having been in both sectors as both a worker and a student how stark is the difference to your mind between public and private sectors yeah I think this is such a hard thing to talk about and it's it's so interesting seeing both sides of the fence I think when you are in that public school system private schools are sort of demonized a little bit I think um people do talk about them like they're this terrible place to work and this terrible place to be and to send your kids. And it's really interesting having perspective from both sides of the fence when people are having those conversations because, like, having worked and having gone to a private school, I genuinely think that the people in private schools care just as much as the people in public schools. Like, I don't I don't think any teacher or any ES staff goes to a private school to work and goes, I'm just going to make money. Because the reality is they're not making a hell of a lot more money than everyone in the public schools. Um, I, I think the, the thought and the heart is in, like, the same place. I think the way it's projected is very different. I think the incredible amount of alumni donations, um, the huge alumni base at private schools, the obviously very wealthy parent base, um, the very expensive school fees. I think all of those things build a very different culture at a private school to a public school. I think the money that private schools have does lead to an incredible array of facilities and opportunities. Um, and you know what? I do think those facilities and, and opportunities do benefit the kids, but I actually think that kids can thrive in a public education setting as well. It's really hard for me to say one is better than the other or one works better than the other or whatever. I just, I think there's pros and cons to both. And I think I, I would agree with principals that, 70% of public schools are chronically underfunded. I think more needs to be done, but that's not up to private schools to fix. That's up to the government to fix that. Um, I think demonising private schools doesn't help anyone. I actually think it just causes an us and them mentality and that can be really unhealthy. I think if you could get a private school on side, potentially there could be a really beautiful partnership there. Maybe, like, I was talking to um, a colleague who I work and volunteer with at Red Cross earlier today, and I was giving her some ideas of how she can engage um, students from private schools in community service programs. I don't know, maybe I'm thinking way too outside the box here, but imagine if you could have, like, a tutoring program or something where senior students from a private school tutor junior students from a public school or a primary government school like what a beautiful partnership that would be where you have students from the same state potentially from the same suburb helping each other purely because one is really privileged and one 
maybe isn't as privileged. Like, I just think that could be, I think it's an untapped area. And I think if we can create partnerships between private and public schools and not have such an us and them mentality, I think both could really benefit. Like a lot of private schools do really big community service programs and they're looking for this kind of work. They go into aged care facilities. They go into not-for-profits. Why can't they go into schools? Why can't they go into other schools and help kids? Like I, I, I don't. I know I'm not answering your question and I know I've gone on a complete tangent here, Um, but I just think they can work together really well. And I think they should. I wish they would. Well, I think it's really interesting as well because there's been a lot of discussion, particularly this year, and this is a bit of a tangent as well, but about the role that kind of um, elite environments and their connection to the corridors of power Mm. plays in distancing decision makers from the lived reality of people who don't experience those elite or privileged environments you know and we've seen you know particularly around um some elite all boys schools you know some cultural issues around gender politics you know really highlighted um and yeah i just i i wonder you know your utopian dream there of the two (laughs) groups coming together you know perhaps there would be just as much if not more benefit for some of those people in elite and privileged environments to meet people who don't have those opportunities and and, and see how they get through life. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of the problem um, that we see with these cultural shifts and, and this elitism is that these people are in a bubble. They don't experience um, really anything like potentially their parents have been to the school um, you know, all their friends go to schools or, or neighbouring similar schools. I, d- I think it's um, it would really benefit students from elite private schools to go into government schools and, and just see how lucky they have it. Um, I think, yeah, that's a great point. What With those, you know, differences, and I think, you know, you're saying there are really obvious differences to facilities and opportunities, mm. how, what impact do you reckon that has on staff? at public schools um, to go without um, those extra benefits that money brings to private schools? Yeah, I think it's hard to say because, like, I'm not a teacher and I honestly think that those um, facilities and stuff probably benefit teachers a lot more than they do ES staff in in that setting. I can imagine it would cause like, quite a lot of exhaustion trying to teach, say, music, for example, without all the facilities and all the resources that a private school might have in the area of music or in theatre where maybe you don't have access to new costumes every year or you don't have access to a stage um, or you don't have access to a sound system. Sporting um, fields. Sporting fields is a great example, especially in an inner city environment where we don't have that at the school I work at. Um, yeah, and these cause uh, like a trickle of problems. So you don't have a sporting field at your school, so that you then have to travel to a sporting field. That causes a toll because you've taken time out of your lesson to travel. You're taking, I don't know how many, how many students, 28 students in a class. It's it's just you like that causes stress and strain as well. 
Um, you then have to cut off the last five minutes of the lesson to get back or however long it takes. I think, I think there's a flow on effect with all these things. It's not just one thing that causes a problem. It's a domino. Mm. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for spending some time today and offering your unique insights into uh, this space. Uh, I really hope that the government starts listening to the union on this issue. It's been a really interesting few years at schools. Um, it's not surprising that education support staff, I think uh, 65% of them are reporting that their workload has increased across the pandemic, which I don't think is surprising. Uh, but yeah, hopefully uh, there is some change and the government comes to the party on some of these demands and good luck with that fight. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Stick Together. Season's greetings and a happy new year. We'll catch you next year, 2022. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. Stick together. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.